Well, hey, good morning again. My name is Josh Miller, and about six months ago, my wife Meredith and I and our three kids, along with about 40 other adults, uprooted our lives from Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, and moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, to plant a new gospel-centered church there. A lot of you maybe haven't been to Charlottesville uh, before. It's about two hours south of Washington, D.C. It's nestled in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's really a beautiful town. And it really was put on the map by Thomas Jefferson. So in 1819, Thomas Jefferson founded the University of Virginia as the very first secular university in our country, like Jeremy mentioned. And uh, as the University of Virginia grew, Charlottesville grew around it. So the University of Virginia is now considered one of the top three or four public universities in the country. And so every year, some of the best students from around the United States and even from around the world flock to our city to learn, to be equipped, to go and make an impact in the world. One of the reasons that we were passionate about planting in Charlottesville is that we have this vision that, man, what could happen, what could happen if those students who are going to go and be leaders of the future, what if they got a vision for their life that was bigger than Capitol Hill, that was bigger than Wall Street, that was bigger than Dubai, and they said, I want to give my life to making disciples. What could God do with that? Every major revival in church history has started on or near a university campus. Think about that. So statistically speaking, if you want to be at the middle of a revival, you better move to Charlottesville, okay? That's what that means. But seriously, I'm really excited to be here. So grateful for Calvary and for your all's partnerships and prayer, your support financially for Jeremy and Pastor Willie's counsel. Um, I consider you all close friends, and, and I'm so grateful for your partnership. Um, six months ago, before we moved to Charlottesville, I knew all the statistics. I sort of became a Wikipedia expert on Charlottesville. My wife jokes that if this pastor thing doesn't work out, I could be a tour guide. Um, and, and the stats are pretty startling. Um, if the stats are true, then 91% of the people who live in the Charlottesville community have no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 91%. If the stats are true, 95% of the students at the University of Virginia lack a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That means that if you were to come up to Charlottesville and you and I were to go to a local Starbucks to study the Bible together or to pray, statistically speaking, we would be the only Christians in that cafe. That means if one of, if one of your children went to the University of Virginia and sat in a class of 40 or 45 people, statistically speaking, they would be the only Christian in that classroom. You see, six months ago, I knew the stats about Charlottesville, but now I know the names and the faces of Charlottesville. I think about my neighbor who has a PhD in psychology, and I sat down and I, and I shared the storyline of the scriptures with him, and I shared the gospel, and he flat out told me he thinks everything I believe is ridiculous. He did his PhD dissertation in developmental psychology, right? He is completely convinced that all we are is a collection of molecules that has developed over billions and billions of years, and there's no real purpose in life. I think about my other friend who I've met with and I've shared the gospel with who moved to Charlottesville because he was in a seven-year homosexual relationship. And that relationship is now ended and he's trying to put the pieces of his life back together and he doesn't know where to look for hope. And I'm pleading with him. I'm saying the thing that you've been looking for for all these years isn't found in a relationship. It's found in Jesus Christ. You see, the truth is stats are one thing, but faces are another. Amen? You can read something online and say, oh, well, that's sad. I wish that that wasn't that way. But when you go to the city and when you talk with the people and when you share the gospel and you see them respond with apathy or with rejection, here's what you realize. The darkness is real, folks. I am more convinced now than I was six months ago that when the Bible talks about us being spiritually dead, it is serious. The darkness is real. It's real in every one of the cities that these church plants are in. It's real here in Clearwater. It's real in Charlottesville. And you can probably testify to that. Maybe you feel like the world is going to hell in a handbasket. That's because it is. 
That's what the Bible says. But here's the other thing I've realized. God's power is real. The darkness is real, but God's power is real. I could tell you a dozen stories of how we've seen that already. I'll choose just one. We've been praying that God would pour out a wave of salvation at the University of Virginia, and in just three months, we've already seen our first student come to faith in Christ. Yeah, that's a clapping moment. Three months. I love this story. We, we have a ministry called Bible and Ball, where a couple of our mini- uh, uh, missionaries to the university will just gather up with a bunch of UVA students, and they'll study through the Gospel of Mark, and then they'll go play basketball for two hours. And these guys are lost. I mean, lost is lost. I can't tell you some of the things they say. It would be inappropriate on this stage, right? But my favorite story is they were studying through the Gospel of Mark a couple of weeks ago, and they were on chapter 8, and they were talking about chapter 8. And one of the students scrolled further on his computer to chapter 9, and he went, Oh, man, number 9 is crazy. He meant chapter 9. He meant chapter 9 is crazy. He's just literally never read the Bible. But here's the thing. God has given us favor with people that are very far from him, and we're finding out that the same power that was at work in the early church is at work in the church today. If I leave you with one thing today, this is what I want it to be. The power within us is greater than the darkness around us. The power within us is greater than the darkness around us. I don't want you to think the darkness isn't real, because it's real. And being in a great church like Calvary can convince you that the darkness isn't that dark. No, it's dark. It's just that God is greater. You see, the darkness of Charlottesville, the darkness of Denver, the darkness of the Silicon Valley is simply a canvas upon which God intends to demonstrate his glory. You see, when dark is dark, the light is even lighter. Amen? Darkness is a canvas for the glory of God. And here's the thing. God wants you to be a part of that. He wants you to be a part of his mission going forward, just like Pastor Jeremy said. Right? He wants you to be a part of him doing exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us. But here's the thing. It doesn't just happen. You don't see the kingdom of God advance just by coming here and sitting in seats. We don't see the kingdom of God advance just by moving to Charlottesville. We have to engage. I think you're here this morning because you want to see the power of God push back darkness in this world. And in order for that to happen, you need to grasp two simple truths about faith that we're going to look at today in John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn it on or open it up. I always say turn it on because all the college students have phones now, right? And we're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. When you find it, I'd invite you to stand as I will read God's word over us. God's word says this, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. It is trustworthy and true. Would you empower me to preach it? And would you give these people ears to hear 
minds to understand and hearts to obey. Amen. You can be seated. So the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, who was Jesus' closest earthly friend. And he wrote his Gospel to help explain to people who Jesus was and what he came to do. One of the major ways he did that was by including things he called signs. Occurrences in Jesus' ministry, real physical occurrences that pointed to deeper profound truth. In the same way that the signs outside that say Calvary Church are intended to point you in here, these occurrences in Jesus' ministry are intended to point you to deeper spiritual truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. The sign that we're going to look at today has to do with faith. And in it, I believe the Apostle John wants us to understand two simple truths about faith. Two simple truths that if you grasp and apply to your own life, will enable you to engage in the mission of God and to be a part of the power of God pushing back the darkness in our world. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk through the text, explaining as we go, and I'm going to draw out those two truths. So verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. So in the second chapter of John, Jesus and his friends were at a wedding where the, wan, the, where the wine ran out, and Jesus miraculously turned a bunch of water into wine. His disciples then left the area of Galilee and traveled south down to Jerusalem for what's called the Passover, which was sort of like Jewish Easter. People from all over Israel would travel to Jerusalem, the capital, for Passover and would stay there for several weeks. So that's what Jesus and his disciples did. They went down to Jerusalem, and while they were there, they did ministry. Jesus taught with authority, he healed people, he performed wonders and signs. And as he did, people started to take notice, and his reputation started to grow. Because there were so many people from all around Israel that were here, people heard about him and then went back to their hometown. So Jesus' reputation spread quickly. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem, and this is what we, uh, he, he comes back to Cana in Galilee, and this is where we find verse 46. Then it says, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. So Capernaum was a larger town, about 16 miles away from Cana, and the text tells us that there was an official there whose son was very ill. Now, what does the word official mean? The word official means that this man worked for the Roman government, so he held a local political position. And it's likely that this man was not Jewish, because the Romans usually did not like having ethnic Jews serve in political positions. They didn't think they they, they could trust them. So what we know is that this man had a lot of clout in his local community, and he probably wasn't Jewish, and he had a son who was very ill. Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So the official hears Jesus is back in town. He's heard about this guy. Jesus is back in town, so he rushes off 16 miles from Capernaum down to Canaan, Galilee, to try to ask Jesus to come and heal his son. This man, we'll find out, was not particularly religious. This official wasn't. He wasn't Jewish, and we're going to find out later that he wasn't wasn't religious at all, really. But he went to Jesus because his son was at the point of death, and as any of you know who have children, if your son is at the point of death, you will do just about anything if you can help them. Right? So this man thought, I I don't know if this Jesus guy is the real deal. I don't know if he's legit, but if he can help my son, then I'm going to go see him. So he goes, he travels the 16 miles to see Jesus. You see, at this point in the story, I would call this man spiritually apathetic. He wasn't opposed to the idea of God, right? He thought that maybe there was something out there that could help his son. He just didn't know much about it. He never really spent much time thinking about it until this crisis happened in his life. That might be some of you here this morning. You maybe, you maybe haven't thought much about God or haven't had much need for God or for the church until something happened. You got a diagnosis or you lost your job or the relationship broke apart and all of a sudden you're saying, man, I need something bigger than me to get through this. That's where this man was. He was spiritually apathetic, but he thought maybe Jesus will help me. 
verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to Jesus, sir, come down before my child dies. So presumably the official found Jesus in Cana. He bursts into his circle of disciples and he says, you need to stop what you're doing and you need to come with me right now. If we leave and we make good time, we can get there in the morning and maybe my son won't die. He bursts into the circle. And Jesus responded and says, unless you see me do miracles, you won't believe in me. You see, the man came to Jesus with a physical need, and Jesus used it to redirect him to his deeper spiritual need. Y'all, this is classic Jesus, okay? This is what Jesus does all throughout his ministry. People come to him with physical needs, and he uses it to redirect them to the deeper spiritual need at hand. But honestly, the royal official was unfazed by this. He just repeats his request, Sir, come down before my child dies. And how the official addresses Jesus tells us a lot about him. He said, sir. He didn't say Lord. He didn't say rabbi. He didn't say teacher. He sort of awkwardly says, sir. I think it's because he didn't know what to call Jesus. He didn't grow up in synagogue. He didn't grow up in the church. He didn't know if you're supposed to call him pastor or whatever. Right? So he just says, sir. This actually happens to me a lot. I'll tell people that I'm a pastor. And they'll say, oh, uh, when did you decide to become a, uh, a, a priest or a, a minister or a reverend? What, what is it? I'll say, I'm sorry, I really prefer spiritual guru. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just people who don't grow up in church, people who aren't religious don't know what to call the holy man, right? And so he just, you know, he just shows up to Jesus and he's like, I don't know, guy, sir, man, come with me. Right? The point is, this, this man wasn't religious. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So Jesus responded to the man's persistence by giving him a command and a promise. He said, go, your son will live. And the text doesn't tell us why, but the man believed. It's amazing, really. The man came to Jesus with a physical need. Jesus said, I'm going to heal that physical need in a spiritual way. And the man believed. And as Jesus healed this man's son, he also drew him to his deeper spiritual need. Because he brought up an important question. What kind of man can simply speak a word and 16 miles away your son is healed? What kind of a person can do that? Medical technology has come a long way since then. But it doesn't matter if you have a world-renowned surgeon if you can't get your child to the hospital, right? It doesn't matter what kind of laser technology or imaging technology that we have. If you can't get your child to the hospital, if you're 16 miles away from the operating room, it doesn't matter. And yet Jesus just spoke a word and healed this man's son. You see, the picture that John is painting for us is that Jesus is so powerful that what he speaks comes true instantly. Instantly. And this man had no category for this. This man did have a category, I think, for a holy man who could come to the bedside of your son and could perform an incantation and maybe apply some oils and do all kinds of dancing and maybe help your son get better. I think he had a category for that. I think it's why he was so concerned with Jesus coming with him to Capernaum. He did not have a category for a man who could speak a word and heal his son. But he believed. At this point, I'd say the man moved from spiritually apathetic to spiritually hopeful. Right? He, he didn't really know who Jesus was. He hadn't dealt with him, but he believed that there probably was a God out there and that God seemed to be interested in helping him in this, in this current moment. Right? This is where a lot of people are today. Maybe this is where you are today. You're not ready to throw out the idea of God, 
right? But you haven't really dealt with Jesus. You're hopeful that God will intervene and will help, and when things go sideways, you tend to pray to Him, but you haven't really dealt with who Jesus is or what it means for Him to be your Lord. We see this on social media a lot. When a tragedy happens, many people will, will tweet or Facebook or whatever, you know, praying for such and such or such and such in our prayers. My neighbor, who's not a believer, asked me to, to send positive thoughts towards her grandma a couple weeks ago because her grandma's not doing well. So people have some sense that, yeah, there is a God out there somewhere, and if we pray or send positive thoughts, he, he's likely to help us in this situation. That's who this man was. He was spiritually hopeful. Look at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will believe. So the man believed Jesus, and he obeyed Jesus' command. Jesus said, go, so he went. And he started his 16-mile walk back to Capernaum. And while he was on that journey, he met some of his servants coming from Capernaum, going the other way. And they had rushed down there to say, you won't believe it. Your son who you left, who was on the point of death, has gotten better. The fever is broken. He's improving. Colors come back into his face. He's sitting up. He's eating. It's a miracle. And, and the official does something really interesting. He doesn't say, yeah, thank you so much. This is so amazing. He says, when did it happen? Imagine if you were those servants. Wouldn't that be a strange way for that man to respond? You could tell something was on his mind. He said, when did it happen? And they said, oh, about one o'clock yesterday. That's the seventh hour. And he said, that is the exact moment, that is the exact moment that Jesus told me my son would get better. Verse 53, and he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You see, when the official realized his son had gotten better at the exact moment that Jesus told him that he would get better, he moved from being spiritually hopeful to spiritually convinced. You see, before this, the man was, you know, he believed in God. He thought maybe God would help him, but he didn't know what to do with Jesus. At this moment, he believed that Jesus was the Lord. He believed in Jesus himself. And we can tell this because he goes home, and the text says he leads his entire household to faith in Christ. Well, the question is, what did he lead them to faith in? He couldn't have led them to faith in the miracle because that already happened, right? That's not faith. It already happened. It must mean that he himself believed in Jesus as the Christ, and he led his household to do the same as well. You see, this story is really phenomenal because in eight verses, we witness this man's entire faith journey, from apathetic to hopeful to convinced. And in it, we learn two simple truths about faith that if you grasp will help you take your next step of faith and engage in God's mission. Number one, genuine faith results in action. Genuine faith results in action. Consider the official in the story. The text says that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke him and went on his way. Jesus gave him a command, go, and he obeyed. He acted on his faith. After rushing from Capernaum down to Cana, after bursting into Jesus' presence, after repeating his request, Jesus says, go, he'll be okay. He believed the man and goes on his way. Right? The faith of this official led to action. It changed his life. Genuine faith always does. I talk to people all the time who say they believe in Jesus, but their lives don't represent it at all. Did you know that the Hebrew word for faith in the Old Testament is a verb? It's a verb. It's an action word. Because the Bible has no category for something called faith that doesn't result in change and action in your life. 
Which is why James, the half-brother of Jesus, would write in his letter, faith without works is dead. Real genuine faith always results in real genuine action. Imagine that I told you up here that I love my wife, Meredith. She came with me today. I said, I'm head over here in love with my wife. She is the only girl for me. She's amazing. I even, I even have a copy of my marriage certificate. Then you come talk to me in the lobby, and I show you the marriage certificate, right? You're like, well, this guy's crazy, right? I show it to him, like, look, I love that woman. She's amazing. She's the only woman for me. But then what if five minutes later you turn around, I'm out in the lobby flirting with other women? What would you think of me? You'd think I was a total dirtbag, right? You'd think I was a giant hypocrite. Why? Because I said I believed one thing, but then I acted differently. Friends, this is the most prevalent and damning critique of the church today. The church is full of people who say that Jesus is their Lord, but don't act like it. The church is full of people that pray to prayer at a vacation Bible school, that pray to prayer at an emotional worship service, but have never really handed the keys of their life over to Jesus as their Lord. How can you say you serve a a Lord of love and grace and mercy and yet spew hateful articles on Facebook? I don't understand what you mean when you say, I'm a Christian and yet I do this. If you're here and you aren't a Christian, isn't one of the reasons that you've seen so many hypocrites in the church? Isn't that one of the reasons that you're like, man, I'm interested in Jesus, but these church people, I don't know what to do with them. Genuine faith will always result in genuine action. It did then and it does now. Not all at once. You won't go from zero to 60 all at once in holiness, but there should be a desire and there should be progress. Look, before I became a Christian, I looked at a lot of pornography. When I became a Christian, that didn't change immediately, but my heart did. I didn't want to do that anymore. And bit by bit, I started fighting that. And over time, by God's grace, it became less and less part of my life. And by God's grace, it's not a part of my life at all now. It didn't happen all at once, but it did happen consistently. I became more and more like Jesus. Here's my question. Is that happening in your life? Is there anything that's different about your life now because you have faith in Jesus, or do you act the exact same way? If you act exactly like you did before you became a believer, and the only difference is now you go to church and you say amen, and you say I'm blessed, and, and all this stuff, then I don't know what you mean by Christian. Genuine faith always results in genuine action. Look, just to be clear, being American doesn't make you Christian. Being from the South doesn't make you Christian. Being conservative doesn't make you Christian. Being Republican doesn't make you Christian. The only thing that makes you Christian is faith in Jesus Christ that results in life change. Which is why Martin Luther, the German monk who sparked the Protestant Reformation, wrote this. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Here's what he meant. We are not saved by our good works. You never could be. We are saved only by faith in the good works of Jesus Christ in our place. But genuine faith in Jesus Christ, if you have real faith, it always will lead to real action. Look, if you are striving towards holiness this morning, if you're in the battle fighting for holiness, I hope you're encouraged by this. Because it means your faith is probably genuine. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope this helps explain some of the hypocrisy that you've seen in the church. And I hope that you won't allow that to keep you from Jesus. And if you've been in a season of apathy, if you don't feel an increasing longing for God's word, an increasing desire to be in Christian community, an increasing desire to share your faith, 
I think this should be shocking for you. I think it should, number one, cause you to say, is my faith real? Is this really transforming my life? And if you do think your faith is real, it should cause you to repent. And to say, my faith needs to translate into action or it's not biblical faith. That's the first thing that we learn. Here's the second thing. Faith is personal but not private. Faith is personal but not private. Look, the royal official had a profound personal experience with Jesus, and he was transformed, and I pray that that has happened for many of you. He came to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who was sent to take away the sins of the world, but he didn't keep it to himself. We can tell that because it says he went home and told his entire household, and they believed in Jesus as well. The gospel message of Jesus Christ travels most effectively along the lines of relational networks. In Acts 10, the Apostle Peter led a Roman military leader to faith in Christ. That man's name was Cornelius. Cornelius then led his family, servants, and many of their friends to Christ as well. In John chapter 4, Jesus led a woman from Samaria to faith in Christ. She went back into her village, and she led many of her family and friends to faith in Christ. You see, you live where you do, and you have the relationships that you do, and you have the connections that you do on purpose. Your life and your network is not random. It is a providential gift from God to be stewarded for the advancement of his kingdom. Acts 17 tells us as much. It says this in verse 26. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So that means God put you in the time period he did and in the place that he did on purpose. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. What does this mean for you? Your network is a key that unlocks a missional door, and you're the only one with that key. If you don't open that door, no one else can. Look, the friends that you have are not random. Your coworkers God has given you are not random. The people you golf with are not random. They have been placed in your life on purpose that you might be a witness to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Your faith is personal, but it is not private. Are you stewarding those relationships well? Is that missional door unlocked, or have you left it closed? Have you left the key in the kitchen and not even cared and gone on and watched TV? No one else can kick that door in. God's given you a key. Have you opened it? Look, going public with your faith might be the most impactful thing you ever do in your life. Going public with your faith could affect the eternity of the people that you work with, that you play with, that are in your family. What could be more impactful? God wants to work through you to bring your network to faith. He wants to work through you to change other families. I can say that with confidence because that's what God did in my life. A lot of preachers come from a long line of preachers. My daddy was a preacher. My granddaddy was a preacher. The whole thing, right? That's not true for me. In fact, before 1970, there were only maybe one or two Christians in my entire extended family. I mean, both sides. But that all changed when an 18-year-old girl named Noel and a 24-year-old young professional in D.C. led my mom and dad to faith in Christ. They led my parents to faith in Christ. They went public with their faith, and then my parents got married. They had my siblings and I, and they raised us in the faith, and because of their faith, I then became a Christian. There is a church plant now in Charlottesville, Virginia, where a UVA student has placed faith in Christ. There are a lot of reasons that church plant is there, but I'm certainly one of them. 
which means that the 18-year-old girl named Noelle, who shared the gospel with my mom 50 years ago, is still making an impact in Charlottesville, Virginia today. Yeah, that's a clap moment, I think. (laughs) Hear me. Noelle didn't have her whole act together. She was not Billy Graham. She was just an 18-year-old girl who was being obedient to Jesus to go public with her faith. She knew that faith results in action, and so she shared the gospel with my mom, and my entire life has been transformed. What could God do through you? Look, we say, oh, I'm not equipped enough. I don't know all the answers. God isn't asking you to be Jesus. He's asking you to share Jesus, all right? Look, when, when 5,000 men came to Jesus and needed food, do you know what he told the disciples? He said, how much do you have? And they said, we have five loaves and a couple of fish. He said, great, give it to me. I'll handle it. Look, I don't know what your five loaves and two fish are, but I do know that Jesus is expecting you to bring it to him, okay? Your faith is personal, guys, but it's not private. God uses ordinary people to transform entire families. He did it in my life, he did it in this official's life, and he wants to do it in your life. Your faith is personal, but it isn't private. These two points are not profound. Genuine faith results in action, Faith is personal but not private. In fact, you maybe have nodded your head through this whole thing. You maybe amened a couple times. So here's the gut-level honest question. If those things I've said are true, why aren't more of you engaged in God's mission? Why aren't more of you engaged in God's mission? Here's what we like to say. I don't have the right personality. I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't, I don't know answers to all the objections. We like to say that if I just had more training, if I just had the right personality, if I just had more this or that, then I would share the gospel. Then I would be engaged in mission. As though when Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples, he prefaced it with, if you have a seminary degree. Do you know who he sent out to go make disciples? A bunch of uneducated fishermen. In terms of intellectual capability, you are way ahead of Peter, okay? Can I be honest? Here's why I think more of you aren't engaged in the mission of God, if I could be so bold. I don't think you really trust Jesus. I'd say that for me too. In moments where I'm not engaged in the mission, where I don't take the opportunity I know I have when I don't share the gospel, it's because I'm not trusting Jesus. Because I think Jesus is going to leave me out to dry. I'm going to step out here, I'm going to step out of the boat like Peter, and I'm just going to sink into the bottom of the sea. Right? What, what if I don't have the answers? What if it gets awkward? What if I alienate my golf buddy? Or I, or I mess up that friendship. We come up with all these excuses for why we can't do it. And honestly, it's just not trust. It's just, we're just not trusting Jesus. We're not sure we want to go where he's going to lead us. It doesn't matter how much evangelism training you get. It doesn't matter how many Bible answers you know. Until you trust Jesus, you are not going to engage in his mission. So how do we trust Jesus? How do we trust him more? How do we trust him with this scary part of our faith? We look at the cross. We look at the cross. You see, in the story that we've looked at, there was a father who was willing to do anything to save his dying son. And in a profound way, the father in this story represents our heavenly father. You see, the Bible tells us that you and I were created as sons and daughters of God to exist in perfect fellowship with him. But that because we've all sinned, because we've all turned away from him, we are now at the point of death. But God the Father in heaven was willing to do anything to save you. You see, the royal official in this story traveled 16 miles to go find Jesus. Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth. 
The royal official in this story faced the discomfort of travel and the humility of throwing himself at the feet of a holy man. Jesus faced the suffering of the cross and the insanity of being nailed into a tree by the people he created and he came to save. This man wanted his son healed. Jesus wants you to be saved. If you ever need evidence that Jesus is trustworthy, look at the cross. What else could he do to prove himself to you? On this side of the cross, the greatest dishonor that you could do to the Son of God is to doubt his trustworthiness. You can trust him. You can trust him with your career. You can trust him with your friendships. You can trust him with your sexuality. You can trust him with your finances. You can trust him with your kids. You can trust him in mission. Jesus has never and he will never fail you. If he overcame the grave, he can overcome your deficiencies. So here's the question. In light of these two simple truths, in light of the reality of the resurrection, what is your next step? What is your next step? Not your neighbor, not me, yours. What is God leading you to do? How is he calling you to step forward and to go public with your faith? Is it a coworker that you need to invite out to lunch? Is it a family member that you need to reach out to? Is it one of these church plants that you need to consider giving to? Or moving with? Look, guys, from the front of the mission field, I can tell you that the darkness out there is real. But I can also tell you that the power within you is real too. And I want you to engage with it. I want you to be a part of the kingdom of God going forward. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you that you are trustworthy. Thank you for dying for us and then rising again that we might have hope. Would you give me, would you give all these people here the humility God, in the faith, to ask what you, are, what you want from us and then to step forward in obedience. So we love you and pray all this in your son's name. Amen. What a great uh, morning it has been uh, to have these uh, church planners with us. They will be in the lobby uh, when you exit this morning. If you want to go talk to one of them, uh, feel free to stop by one of their tables and uh, Grab them and, and grab a moment with them. It's going to be a great time. When you came in, uh, the seat back's in front of you. You'll see these cards there. If you'll take the time to fill that out and, uh, and respond. The whole, our whole prayer for this missions month is that you would seek God and ask him uh, about how he might move in your life to get involved in mission work. Uh, there, there are three boxes you can check. One is locally, one is nationally, one is internationally. Locally is a given. That's a given uh, here. You're going to live out your faith in Jesus locally. That, that, that's what's going to happen. Uh, nationally, internationally, God might be calling you to one of these church plants. He might be calling you to hang out with Brenda over in South Asia. Uh, or another place in the world. So you'll have an opportunity to talk to Brenda up here at the front following the service, and then, of course, one of these uh, church planners. So God bless you as you go. Thank you so much for being here. Consider what God might be calling you to. Have a great week.